Welcome to another episode of the Miko Paled podcast. This episode isn't just an interview. It's an urgent call to action for material support for Palestinians facing the threat of the coronavirus. Palestinians are one of the most at-risk populations as they face this pandemic, with a lack of adequate health resources and very dense urban environments that are controlled largely by Israel. Since COVID-19 became a global reality, the Palestine Children's Relief Fund a nonprofit and humanitarian assistance organization has been working on the ground in the West Bank, Gaza Strip, as well as Lebanon and Jordan's refugee camps to help support the public health care system and response by providing equipment and materials. Steve Sasabi is the founder of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, or PCRF, and worked as a journalist in the West Bank for the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs in 1988. PCRF got its start after Steve learned of a Palestinian boy who lost both of his legs, an eye, and a hand. He coordinated care for the boy and his sister in the U.S., but then began helping other children. The Palestine Children's Relief Fund then formed in 1991 and has been providing life-saving critical relief to Palestinian children ever since. In this episode, Miko touches base with Steve, who is currently on the ground in the West Bank amidst this virus, and they discuss the current situation, infection rates, what relief looks like, and what all of us can do to pitch in to support PCRF's current COVID-19 Humanitarian Response Fund for Palestine, which you can actually donate to right now by going to www.pcrf.net. We urge all of our listeners to pitch in what you can to this campaign. Share it with your family. Share it with your friends. Try and spread the word and maximize the amount of medical supplies and aid resources that PCRF can deliver to the people of historic Palestine of people who really need us to step up right now in this moment. Now on to the conversation between Miko Paled and Steve Sasabi. Who is the founder and the CEO, I guess, of Palestine Children Relief Fund, PCRF, um, a wonderful relief organization that has been doing tremendous work for a very long time with Palestinians, uh, with relief for Palestinian and particularly Palestinian children. Uh, Steve and I have known each other, been friends for a long time, and uh, it's really great to be able to to chat with you uh, here today. So maybe you could just kind of tell us how you're doing and a little bit about PCRF. Sure. Thank you, Miko. First of all, thank you for having me, and I just want to um, say how much I appreciate and respect you, not only for the work you're doing, but for the, you know, the, the moral and... Uh, ethical positions you take on this very important issue for a long time. I know it's sometimes you're by yourself from um, from the Israeli side, or it seems to be that case. I know that's not actually the case, but I just want to give you a, a particular uh, mention of respect and appreciation for who you are and what you stand for. Um, and what, you know, and also to everybody listening, you know, just to stay safe and keep your humanity and uh, remember that, you know, these times of, um, crisis is when we uh, present who we really are as, as people and as human beings. And if you're somebody who believes in solidarity and equality and freedom and justice, now's the time more than ever to stand on those principles and present that to the world. Here in Palestine, where I've been living uh, for, for many years, um, the situation, as you've asked about, uh, is kind of a tenuous one, uh, meaning that the main focus for all relief organizations, as well as the government here, the Palestinian Authority, is prevention. Because once this coronavirus, this COVID-19 
um, pandemic breaks out here in the occupied territories, um, there's no stopping it. They don't have the resources, they don't have the infrastructure in the health sector um, to really do much to, to stop it once it breaks out. So all of the focus now is to really prevent the spread from coming. And as you can imagine, that's quite a challenge considering that um, the occupation uh, in the West Bank in particular um, by the Israeli uh, government, the Israeli military, uh, settlements all around. Uh, the infection rate in Israel is much high. It's comparable to what it is in the United States. I believe there's over 7,000 cases in Israel with a population of just under 10 million. So uh, here in the West Bank, we only have around 230 cases so far recorded, and the vast majority of them in the past couple of weeks have come from workers returning from Israel, the laborers who, who do much of the manual the menial tasks there in, in inside Israel, coming back to their families with infections of COVID-19. And, um, you know, the outbreak happened about six weeks ago in Bethlehem uh, with tourists who were coming from, I think, Greece or, or somewhere in Europe and brought the infection into the Palestinian territories. And I have to say the Palestinian Authority did a very good job. They were They were aware of how serious this issue was early on, much more than my own government back in the United States and took very um, drastic measures uh, at the time to, first of all, shut down Bethlehem, which was, you know, right around Easter time, uh, right before Easter uh, is the main source of income for the Palestinian economy. So it was not an easy decision to make, but they took that decision. And then as the infection started to be, um, started to spread through the territories, they started to shut down the entire West Bank. And now we have been here, the schools have been closed for about a month now, um, as well as for the last few weeks, uh, the restaurants and all of the businesses, and for the most part, people are living under quarantine. In the Gaza Strip, we have, I believe, uh, somewhere between a, around a dozen cases, and most of them were coming back from Egypt uh, as uh, you know, Palestinians who were either traveling in Europe or um, in other parts of the world, bringing the infections back. And obviously Gaza is a much more serious uh, challenge because of the lack, even more lack of resources uh, uh, in the health sector there due to the embargo and the sanctions that have been pro imposed on the Gaza Strip since uh, 2006. So the health sector has been under siege and has been um, you know, near collapse for many years. That's an area that we work very closely uh, with the people there um, serving the population uh, and have know very well uh, how dire that health situation is. Uh, in Gaza, it's, it's, the risk is much higher because the density of the population is extremely high. In addition to, you know, you have eight refugee camps in Gaza. These camps are congested. Um, people live on top of each other in immense poverty, uh, open sewage. And in addition to that, the level of hygiene in Gaza is impacted by the very poor quality of water. 90% uh, of Gaza's water is undrinkable, so you can imagine how that affects the ability to wash hands and stay clean and the hygiene factor, which is so essential in fighting this disease and this virus and the, and the spread. Uh, and all of the other factors uh, that go into um, this overall prevention mode that the Palestinians have to take at this time. Um, so, so how do they, how do they, 
what do they do for prevention in Gaza, for example, with the conditions being as they are? How, how, do, they, how do they prevent the spread of the disease? Well, it's ironic in a kind of a cruel way. As, you, as I mentioned, Gaza, and you know this very well, has been under siege for so long. Um, it's been closed completely by the Israeli authorities since 2006, and the border with Egypt has been only open uh, occasionally, uh, meaning that the Gaza population in some way benefits from this isolation uh, that the rest of the world is unable to kind of get under control. Um, the fact that people in Gaza don't travel outside, don't have permits to travel outside easily, um, don't have access to the world, people cannot go into Gaza very easily. Um, this has given them a slight advantage or maybe not even a slight one uh, compared to the rest of the world when it comes to controlling the infection. So there's basically two points of entry into Gaza um, for people. Uh, who are coming from uh, the outside. There's the Rafah border crossing with Egypt, with that which I mentioned, and there's the Erez crossing with Israel. And both of those borders, when you cross into Gaza, are controlled eventually by the Palestinian Authority on the ground there. And when people come in, they can be cordoned off and quarantined immediately rather than going to their homes and asking them to self-quarantine. And that's what has been happening. The Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian regime in Gaza has been uh, quarantining everybody who's been entering to Gaza from both sides, from the north and from the south. And uh, the first group of uh, quarantined persons, or is just, uh, I don't want to say released, but able to go back to their families yesterday after spending uh, weeks uh, inside uh, the schools there and some of the other facilities that were set up for them um, after they obviously were tested and able to pass uh, home or not show any symptoms. So. Um, this is actually an advantage, as I mentioned, in giving them the ability to uh, keep this infection under control. And if they don't do that, if they don't take these very drastic measures, uh, then the risk of the entire Gaza Strip being infected rather quickly would be an extremely uh, serious humanitarian crisis. And you're say, you were saying that in the West Bank, uh, restaurants, schools, businesses are all closed? Yeah, everything's closed. The only thing that's been open so far are supermarkets and pharmacies. And uh, what we understand from um, the word that came out today, the unofficial word, but uh, everybody's talking about it, that they're planning to even uh, make it even more kind of harsh, meaning that even those facilities will be closed. Because if you go out into Ramallah, I went out today um, just to kind of go around and see what was happening, not to... to meet anyone or see anybody, but uh, there are still some people out. And uh, that's not to say that uh, there's widespread uh, traffic. There isn't. The streets are for the most part empty, but you still see people. Uh, but people have been very good about um, adhering to the, the law and adhering to the closure that has been enacted by the, the prime minister's office. Um, but with that being said, I think they're quite concerned. So how do people make ends meet? What do, what do people do for livelihoods? Well, that's, that's the second issue that I wanted to discuss. First, we have the big crisis of the healthcare system here not having the resources to deal with the widespread outbreak and the uh, determination of the Palestinians to uh, uh, really prevent the disease from taking root in the occupied territories. That's the main focus, obviously, from a medical point of view. But the other aspect of this uh, virus here in Palestine, the spread of, of COVID-19, and this is true everywhere in the world, but it's especially true 
in underdeveloped and poor countries like Palestine is the ec economic impact of the closure and the, uh, the social distancing and the, um, the quarantine that the societies have to go under. A significant population of Palestinians live day to day. They, they're laborers, they have small businesses, they depend on that daily income to feed and take care of their families. And a significant, <clears throat> there isn't a social network here where the government can pass a $2 trillion or any amount of uh, relief to give people cash at this time um, to alleviate some of the hardship of feeding their families and taking care of the basic costs. Now, the society here does have a pretty strong charitable component where families and people try to take care of each other. And that's been true for the Palestinians for a long time. If you are Palestinian or you know Palestinians, you can always ask uh, about the one breadwinner who educates his brothers and sisters after he gets educated and shares the wealth and shares the opportunity. And that's true here on the ground as well. When people go without, others try to share. Now, we've never, we have, I don't want to say we never, we've been under curfew many times here. I can remember the six-week curfew during the first Gulf War when the entire West Bank was uh, locked down by the Israeli military. Um, that's not the same thing as what's happening today. Uh, but Palestinians have gone through this kind of uh, uh, circumstances in the past, and maybe that's why we don't see the same scenes of panic or uh, I don't know what you're calling it in the U.S. is a panic shopping or what people are doing when they yeah. kind of go into these yeah. supermarkets and purchase large quantities of things that you wonder why they're purchasing. We don't see that here in Palestine. Um, people are not panicking and they're not exhibiting any kind of general social disorder behaviors that we see in the U.S. or in other kind of developed countries. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they've gone through some of these circumstances in the past with uh, living under occupation. Have you been out of Ramallah? Have you been to, have you seen what's happening like in some of the smaller towns and villages or other cities? Yeah, last week I went to Tokaram, Janine and Nablus. And yeah. um, I have a permit from the Ministry of Health that enables me to travel. I'm not, I'm not doing that, uh, you know, uh, I, just as a kind of disrespectful way. I, I'm, I have responsibilities to, uh, and we as an organization have responsibilities here on the ground to do relief projects and to help alleviate some of the suffering that we're seeing here every day. So I did go to Tokaram, Janine, and Nablus, and I, I would say I was stopped by maybe 12 to 15 different Palestinian checkpoints where they were um, kind of ensuring that people were not just going around and trying to contain traffic and limit people from moving. At uh, one checkpoint, when I entered Nablus, they even took my temperature with one of the small kind of uh, handheld devices um, to ensure that I was not symptomatic. And I respect that. And I was kind of, uh, it gives people a sense of confidence. I'm not sure exactly how effective it might ultimately be, but it does give a sense of confidence that the government is trying to um, limit movement and control the spread in whatever measures they have available. Um, so, you know, and going into those places like Tokaram and Janine and Nablus, three of the main towns in the Northern West Bank, Nablus in particular being the main economic hub of the Northern West Bank and the West Bank itself, um, you see very limited economic activity. You see a limited number of people on the streets. All the businesses are closed. And um, 
you know, again, that's a sign that the Palestinians are taking this very seriously and doing their best to prevent this uh, virus from spreading. You know, as you drive into Nablus, there's this whole street that first, first of all, it's full of restaurants, then it's full of furniture stores, then there's all these, so everything is closed. Everything. They're, wow. they're not allowed to be open. Um, here in Ramallah, you know, even people who work by themselves, you know, there's a carpenter who we met who hasn't worked in, in two weeks. And, you know, he's a guy who also lives hand to mouth and, and, you know, has to make his money every day through his labor. He can't even open his shop by himself to, you know, create, you know, bookshelves or chairs or tables or things that carpenters here make. Uh, people are just not permitted to do anything. Oh. And um, the effect that that's going to have here could potentially be catastrophic from an economic point of view. But it's hard to really speak too strongly on those terms because that's everywhere. That's happening in the United States. That's happening in a lot of countries uh, where the entire economic infrastructure is shut down at the moment. So tell, uh, tell me a little bit about what PCRF is doing right now. What are you guys doing? Thank you for asking. Um, we uh, we're, First of all, we're also working in Jordan and Lebanon. The refugee camps in Lebanon are their own kind of uh, hotbed of potential outbreaks, given the density of the population there and the lack of um, kind of uh, uh, governmental support for prevention and services. And that's a different story. We could talk on that a bit if you'd like. But overall, and we have, an, we have offices and field workers in all of those countries, Lebanon, Jordan, and the West Bank and Gaza. And our goal is to identify at-risk populations and to provide some form of support and assistance. And in particular, the two main areas that people currently need support are infection control materials and supplies um, that enable them to um, keep clean and keep their relatives and their family and their uh, living environments free of the disease and also basic foodstuffs because right now we are seeing significant shortages of food uh, among people who, uh, as I mentioned before, are living day to day. In addition to that, we've provided medical supplies and medical materials uh, for some of the hospitals and doctors that we work with in particular. Um, the cancer departments that we opened in Gaza for children uh, and the one we opened in Beit Jala have both been provided with some uh, masks and other medical supplies. And we're looking to purchase more PPEs for those medical professionals because they are the ones most at risk. In particular, those kids in those departments with cancer are the most vulnerable because when you are undertaking chemotherapy, your immune system is not able to fight off even the common cold let, go, let alone a virus as dangerous and as aggressive as the COVID-19 virus. In addition to that, we had a campaign last week um, to purchase uh, digital mobile x-ray machines for the Ministry of Health uh, to help enable them to better uh, identify and, uh, and support patient care, patient diagnosis, and patient treatment. As you know, uh, the COVID-19 virus is a respiratory infection and the shortages of x-ray machines within the Ministry of Health makes it more challenging and difficult for um, better management and diagnosis of people with this disease. So we are in the process of purchasing these items for them. The biggest problem that we're facing, and this is a global problem, is the global shortage of essential items like ventilators, like PPEs, the protective gear for health professionals, um, face masks, um, 
the most basic essential supplies that are most in need uh, are just not available for purchase. There's just a global shortage of them. And that puts us all in a very difficult situation. The rich countries obviously can pay the most for them and um, can purchase them on the market where countries like Palestine uh, or more uh, or poorer countries or less developed countries in this region simply don't have the resources and are far behind the rest of the world in being able to obtain them. So unfortunately, uh, unless the virus spreads and then there's a significant reduction in places like China, um, bringing over uh, ventilators from China to Palestine might be an, al uh, an alternative um, to helping to fight the disease here. And I know the Chinese are sending over or were to send a jet over full of supplies to the Middle East relatively soon. And hopefully there will be ventilators on that uh, flight because that's really the most essential item that's in short supply here. Um, and so those are the things we're doing. In addition, we are building and expanding the intensive care unit uh, in the Janine Hospital, in, um, in Ramallah Hospital, we're building a brand new intensive care unit. And in Gaza, we're supplying the intensive care unit with basic essential materials to help supply and enable them to be able to treat patients who may be coming in for intensive care treatment to, um, to fight this disease. Uh, the other, we're part of a, a WHO, World Health Organization, consortium of uh, NGOs who are all trying to share our information and resources to kind of have a collective response rather than everybody doing their own thing and duplicating uh, um, the same work or not addressing the most essential needs together. So there is a collective effort being done here by organizations like PCRF and others um, to work together and to support as much as we can the Ministry of Health and the main health providers on the ground who are at the front line of fighting this disease. But again, limited resources, limited supply on a global market, and places like Gaza, um, you know, that have been cut off for so long, uh, it's really hard to work in some of those places and get supplies and materials in in a timely manner, given the political situation on the ground here. Do you have any information about what is happening in the prisons where so many Palestinian, Israeli prisons where so many Palestinians are being held, what the conditions are, what is happening? Yeah, there's been some reports by both Israeli and Palestinian human rights groups um, that there have been uh, cases of uh, COVID-19 in the Palestinian prisons, uh, in the Israeli prisons where Palestinian political prisoners are being held. And this is not surprising, given that these prisons are generally very crowded. Services there are very poor as far as, um, uh, you know, space and uh, the social distancing when you have uh, multiple people sharing a cell and not having access to basic hygiene and basic supplies of infection control, you can imagine that it's uh, fertile ground for a virus like COVID-19 to take root and to really uh, do significant damage. And we've heard that the Palestinian, uh, several Palestinian prisons, prisoners have been infected. In addition, um, family members are not able to um, visit their relatives any longer. That's been halted since the pandemic began. Um, but getting accurate information right now is very, very difficult uh, because of the closure of the territories, the inability for relatives and family members to have access to their uh, loved ones who are inside prisons and um, the bigger crisis that Israel's facing next door um, with having such a huge outbreak and their own challenges of being able to manage and mitigate the, the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so how can people help? people want to do something what can they what can they do 
No, thank you for asking. Um, we are always looking for donations to be able to purchase uh, materials here on the ground in the local market to be able to provide to poor people, whether it's food, whether it's uh, infection control and hygiene kits for the poorest and most neglected people here, um, or medical equipment and medical supplies to help boost up and support the um, collective uh, response to the potential spread, particularly in Gaza. Uh, and also in the camps in Lebanon and Jordan, as I mentioned before, where hundreds of thousands of Palestinians don't have a ministry of health to protect them, don't have uh, any type of uh, local authority other than whatever the people in the camp can put together and organize themselves. Um, we're on the ground there trying our best to provide support and assistance for those people. So if you visit our website, pcrf.net, and you'll be able to see some of the success stories we've had over the past couple of weeks uh, in dealing with this um, this crisis, and also uh, support our humanitarian work and ensure that 100% of your donation goes towards um, providing medical equipment, medical supplies, food, and humanitarian materials for individuals, for hospitals, and for healthcare providers. You you mentioned you mentioned the camps in Lebanon and Jordan. Do you have any data about what the conditions are in terms of the spread of the virus? Uh, not well. It's very hard. I mean, first of all, in Lebanon, uh, the crisis in Lebanon began several months ago—not the COVID crisis, but the political crisis there—and the our ability to operate and work there was impacted by uh, the uprising of the Lebanese people against their government back in October, which closed roads and closed businesses and uh, well, just put the whole country in kind of a state of upheaval, and um, so. The accuracy of information that's coming in from Lebanon and from Jordan. Jordan's much better, much more stable environment, and the government's much more in control, obviously. But in the camps in Lebanon, there right now the access to the camps is under the control of the Palestinians. In 1968, I believe, the PLO, the Lebanese government, signed the Cairo Agreement, which gave the control of those Palestinian camps in Lebanon to the PLO. The internal control, meaning security and services within the camps, is not the uh, responsibility of the Lebanese government. It's the responsibility of the Palestinians. So the Palestinians have taken it upon themselves to set up popular committees to organize access inside the camps, to enforce and control um, quarantine policies and the closure of businesses to prevent the spread. And so far, it's been relatively successful, but they also have limited resources. So we're trying to support uh, in all of the camps in Lebanon and in Jordan, but Jordan's much more difficult because the curfew there is much more strict. But in Lebanon, we're trying to support uh, these popular committees um, by giving them uh, materials and supplies and resources to uh, better enact these uh, infection control policies and measures for the people inside the camps. Wow, incredible. Uh, I was in Jordan just a few just after I just came back from you know Palestine and Jordan a few just when this thing was starting at the beginning of March, um, and I was at the uh, Jarish camp up in uh, northern Jordan. And yeah. understand everything is 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 closed now. People can't travel, can't go in and out. But you can't imagine what, what might happen if, if that thing spreads. It would be like wildfire. Yeah, yeah. All of the Palestinian camps in in the Middle East, in particular, are very densely congested. They suffer from extreme poverty. And um, the infrastructure in the camps are uh, make it extremely difficult to 
um, stay uh, infection control. I mean, uh, to enact infection control measures, you have in some camps open sewage, you don't have clean water, you have six, seven people living in the same room, you don't have space for people to be isolated. Uh, once one person is infected, it will spread very quickly to these camps. So um, that's a very big worry for the health authorities and for the political authorities in all of these countries here. You can imagine how terrified they are. And we've seen that we see we've seen that in Jordan because the measures they took to shut that country down were quite um, were very strong, but also very necessary because the risk of an outbreak in Jordan or anywhere in this region, but Jordan in particular, because they, you know, the government there has the ability to really enforce these rules. Um, the outbreak for them is is a huge, huge potential risk, particular with the Syrian refugees and the Palestinian refugees. So yeah, in Jarish, in those places, which you know very well, it doesn't take much. It's just lighting a match and, uh, and it will spread like wildfire. So that's the biggest fear all of us have in this region. And uh, we're praying every day that, um, the workers coming back from Israel into the West Bank for Passover, you know, no longer uh, needed uh, during the, hol the holidays in Israel. Um, it, we're seeing a large number of people with infections. They're immediately being identified and quarantined. And hopefully that will prevent a larger spread that we've seen just across the wall in Israel, which is uh, really out of control right now. Wait a minute. So are you saying that there's still uh, day laborers going back and forth? No, they're returning. So uh, because of the holiday in Israel, Passover, um, these workers are returning home and they're coming back. Lots of them are coming back with infections and uh, the Palestinian government is meeting them at the border, doing tests and trying to identify people who are infected and, and then obviously taking the proper measures to treat them once they're identified. But that's increased the number of people who are infected over the past week by i believe uh it's doubled that number that we had before or close to doubled it so and, and, then, and these are these are people that have been tested don't forget tests here are very hard there's only been about i think seven or eight thousand people tested or ten thousand people tested in the west bank and we are also supporting the ministry of health to have the proper materials to do more tests here um we've uh purchased um uh testing materials for them but it's far short of what's needed to really take control and isolate this infection. Because as you know, um, what's needed more than anything are testing kits. Because so, once you, everybody gets tested, they can be isolated, and then you can really kind of stamp out the, the virus that way. But if you don't test, then it's very hard to know who's infected and who isn't. Are these the tests that bring back the quick results? Because I know there's a test here now where you get the results in two hours. There's two types. Uh, yes, we would like the quicker ones, obviously, the, the ones that can give you the, the, the test or the results within a couple hours. And that's what's most needed globally. But in a country like Palestine, uh, obviously, it's uh, where prevention is much, much more important than because they just aren't going to be able to treat a widespread outbreak. Not that anybody can treat it. We've seen that in New York. We've seen that in Italy but uh, and in Spain. But uh, here in Palestine, again, the resources are so limited uh, that, uh, and you're trying to treat people under occupation with all of the impact of, and the inability for people to move freely and have access to treatment centers because of the, the policies and methods of the occupation authority to prevent uh, free movement within the West Bank. 
all of those factors would make the outbreak here extremely dire and extremely dangerous. So the testing kits are even more important here because we have to identify and isolate everybody who's infected, lest the outbreak take root and um, just destroy the health sector and the entire society. So how soon do they get results? Well, the test kits that they have right now. Yeah, right now they have the good ones that are giving them okay. back the test in a couple of hours. But uh, as again, oh. there's only a few thousand of those available. And uh, we're getting donations uh, from uh, particularly from China and from the Gulf countries are providing funding as well. But uh, again, on a global market, you have to purchase these tests. And, they have, and don't forget, uh, there's 30 percent inaccuracies on the uh, when you test negative so far, 30% of those test results can be false, so false negative. Oh. So that's a factor as well that's impacting uh, this uh, this treatment process. And do you expect that the, there's going to be a complete closure or Palestinian uh, workers will still going to be able to go back and forth to go to work? I mean, that depends on, on Israel and it depends on the Palestinian Authority. Um, but right now? Right now, I, I think Israel is taking steps to f try to further close their society and close their economy and kind of bite the bullet for the next couple of weeks. So I probably don't foresee any workers going back to Israel in the immediate future um, until the situation changes. I would say the month of April is a time where both the West Bank and Israel are going to go through some very significant uh, quarantine measures of their populations and try to get this thing under control. Um, I don't think that any other policy makes sense at this time. It's, it's really yeah. just playing with fire. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time, Steve. Uh, you've been doing absolutely incredible work with PCRF, with your team uh, over all these years. I always say you're the guy that gets this stuff done. And uh, I always encourage people, if they want to donate, you know, go to PCRF.net and donate there because you know the money's going to the right place. Um, so thank you again for all of your time and, and, and your efforts and for all the information. And um, good luck, you know, stay healthy, you know, give my best, our best to everybody in the West Bank, everybody you see. And uh, again, it's PCRF.net and we'll put a link in so people can uh, go straight to the website. Anything else uh, kind of in closing that you'd like to add before we go? Thank you, Mika. Well, first of all, thank you for having me and thank you for all your listeners who are supporting you and the great work that you're doing, sharing information and, and bringing this message of solidarity, love and freedom for the Palestinian people. Um, the only message I have is, you know, just don't panic, folks. You know, these are, these are crisis periods that we have to get through together and don't lose your humanity and don't lose your compassion for others. And um, this will pass, but it will only will pass if we unify and stick together and show solidarity for each other as brothers and sisters and take this on together. And that's, I guess, the, the message we all should be sharing right now. So thank you, Miko, for having me. I really appreciate it. Amen. Thanks a lot, Steve. Talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks, brother. Take care. All right, that'll do it. Thanks to everybody for tuning in and educating yourselves on the situation unfolding in Palestine right now. Please get the word out about PCRF's COVID-19 Humanitarian Response Fund. Your tax-deductible donation will help Steve Zorg provide humanitarian support to people at risk, as well as provide medical supplies and equipment during this crisis. 
All you got to do is go to pcrf.net to donate, or you can just click the description link that I've put below in the description of the podcast. Lastly, if you could please help spread the word of the Miko Palette podcast, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, I think pretty much any podcast app that you use. And if you haven't already, please leave us a rating and review. It helps uh, other people learn about the podcast. If you have any questions for Miko, you can shoot those over to me at booking at mikopaled.com, and we can try to get those answered on forthcoming episodes. All right, till next time. <laughs>